0: you agree that you know it's time that we all wake up and take responsibility even for our ancestors that do not know any better i've been waiting patiently to have this kind of conversation <laughs> Well, it's Wake Up With KC, and today I want to talk about long shots. We've all had long shots, overcame life experiences, and, you know, how do we take our experiences, learn and grow, and what can we take from it, or do we stay in, you know, the being stuck, being in, you know, whatever circumstances, environment. And I have a very special guest that I'm very honored and grateful for joining us today. Please welcome Michael Stein. Oh, thank you very
1: much. That was nice.
0: (laughs) Well, I, I mean, long shot, leader. You have a podcast and, you know, when I came, when we first met and talked, and you shared some of the things i couldn't wait you know but there were some technical issues (laughs) so we we rescheduled. so i'm so glad that we're back together and doing this because you do have a very interesting inspiring story about your wife and i'm impressed and i'm like so proud of you of what you have done and what you did to transform your life and who you become now can you please share with us you know your life journey how it became began and whatnot
1: yeah sure thank you that was so nice um so yeah i do a, a, a podcast called long shot leaders and you know the reason why i do that i've been wanting to do a podcast for a long time, so if I was going to do a podcast, it would have to be an encapsulate who we are. I believe you should just, you know, it's like stand up comedy, which I've done. You you have to, you know, talk about and write about what you are and who you are. So I come from a long line of long shots. Uh, my grandmother escaped the Russian concentration camps uh, to, on her way to America. My dad was a New York homeless street kid, became a multimillionaire only to lose it all and become homeless again. So I I had to grow up in the same room with my grandmother until, you know, I grew up in Encino, I grew up in a rich area, but we were a poor family because my dad lost all his money. Right. So I, I had to sleep in the same room, with my grandmother. So I was nine years old and I would hear that story. You know, you're lucky to be alive, you know, because we escaped the Russian concentration camps. And then my mom, uh, ha- I was an oops baby. You know, I was basically, you know, just trying to hold, she was trying to hold on to that crazy guy. My dad was had this crazy lifestyle and he wasn't around, but I was the oops baby in a very large family. And she, you know, I wasn't supposed to be born. So she would tell me stories like, you know, I, I drank, I ran up and down the stairs, I smoked, I, you know, did this and that, you know, and then I was like, mom, can you just, did she tell everybody a story? Could you just tell them what you want, ranch or blue cheese, you know, because let's just get the story going. So I would hear the story. She would tell this to everybody. So I... You know, my whole life has been up and down. Career, knock on wood, the past twenty years have been very more successful. But I grew up seeing a lot of long shots and a lot of ebb and flow. We can get into that. But my my life, uh, I was born premature. A lot of health issues, ADHD, ADD, dyslexia. I was put in a special home for special needs kids uh, I, until I, you know, finally got out of there. Um, I was good able to go to regular school. And basically it, you know, I really didn't have any success other than making people laugh, making fun of myself. That was the first bit of success, but I was just a basket case until I was like 11 years old. Like most boys here in America, I saw the movie Rocky. And that inspired me And so here's a guy like me. Here's a guy that fails a lot, but gets back up and keeps on trying. He's funny, but the only difference between Rocky and myself is he's physically fit. So I made an agreement with myself every day. Since then, I'm going to become physically fit. So I, you know, that's when really things turned around because then I had a second bit of success. By the time I was 16, I became a fitness trainer. And that opened doors for self-esteem. So my journey began there, but many other things happened after that. But that was really what turned things around when I started to believe in myself with a second bit of success and health.
0: Wow. And you just didn't let you know your disabilities and health issues get in the way no matter what somebody told you you just it was just this one person that changed your mindset and it's almost like well if he could do it i can too kind of mentality something shifted your energy shifted the biochemistry in your body shifted so you you a fitness trainer at 16 that's amazing a huge
1: accomplishment. Well, I know a lot of fitness trainers. You know, there were sixteen, but I—I I guess from where I started from, you know, just being a physical, you know, basket case, I just was not athletic. You know, I, I my my mother put me in a basketball league for one year, and uh, it was a Hebrew league, and I was the worst player in the whole league. And I, to be the worst he, player in a Hebrew league, you know, that's pretty bad. So. <laughs> But you know, what what I what happened was is that, you know, when you change your physiology, that's step number one in the triad of emotions is you change your physiology. So when my physiology changed, even at a young age, it was a dopamine rush. And I was able to be healthy and feel different after exercising. I just wanted to be like Rocky, you know, that's all I know. He got so much respect. I mean, people don't know that that are older. That movie came out, won Academy Award in seventy-six. It was like this big thing. It was like kind of a revolutionary kind of story, and it's a great script. And it just made an impact. On me, and from having a second bit of success, when everybody's like, "Oh, look at the the results I got because I was so hyper," you know, I had that what they call hyper attention towards something, and I just didn't. I felt all I at that time was wanted to make people laugh and get physically fit. That was it. Those are the two things I was hyper focused on. Those two things, and because I wasn't a good student, I barely graduated high school. To which I wanted to be like my dad, who was an bi- entrepreneur. He was called the Calculator Kid. He was a multimillionaire. I made millions of dollars in the '70s selling these calculators. I said, "I want to be the Calculator Kid." So when I told my high school tutor, I said, "I'm going to be an entrepreneur, an actor, and a comedian." Those are the things I want to be. And she says, "Well, you might want to just work with your hands because that requires reading and 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 uh, you know intelligent things." And I said, "Well, screw you." And I, I started a business a week after I graduated high school, and it failed miserably. And I said, "Well, maybe she's right." You know, I God, what am I going to do? You know, then six months later, I I took city co- city college courses. I took psychology, and uh, act and theater and business. And within six months, I decided I did stand up comedy because I was always wanted to do when I was nineteen. And I brought a lot of people there, and I said, "You know what? I could probably bring people to nightclub." So I got into nightclub promotion, and within six months, I became the number one nightclub promoter in Los Angeles. Uh, when I was you know, 19 years old um, and that was the third bit of success. And I was like, wow, I, I feel like I can, I see the there's failure, but there's success after failure. You know, I was used to the failure part already. So I got into nightclub promotion, which opened up all the doors for me because you become like a mini celebrity. So I, I ended up doing a, probably the biggest nightclub promotion, you know, event for a movie ever called for the Batman movie in 1989, which had like 4,000 people. I like orchestrated this big event and um, through there I was able to get my first acting role playing Dirk Diggler in the Dirk Diggler story, which eventually turned into Boogie Nights, which I appear in as well. And uh, things really started to open up, you know, for my quest to be an actor and a filmmaker and um, an entrepreneur. And where does the Dirk Diggler story
0: and the Boogie Nights stem from? Where were you fired
1: Well, I, my girlfriend and Paul Thomas Anderson's girlfriend at the time – Uh, We're sisters and I had to drive him home one night. He didn't have a car. He was just 17 years old and I drove him home and I was cracking him up and, you know, he had him in tears and, and a day later he calls me up and says, look, I got an idea. I want to do a short film uh, about the rise and fall of a porn star named Dirk Diggler. And I want you to play Dirt Diggler. And I was like, well, I want to be an actor. So hell yeah. You know, let's do it. Let's do it. I don't even know what it was. I don't even know what the plan was. I just went over there. We had like a pseudo production meeting over at his parents' house. And, you know, about a few months later, uh, he followed through with it. And he did a short film called The Dirt Diggler Story, which won awards, won an American Film Institute award for video, even though it was a video back then. And um he he eventually segued into you know doing another short film that did really well, and then that that helped him segue into a motion picture film, his first film Heart 8, and that enabled him to make eventually Boogie Nights.
0: Wow! And I hear
1: an echo. echo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not I don't know me. Where coming from <laughs> you, sound great.
0: Well, thank you. You do too. Um. um so, during that, when you got a taste of acting, and then, I know, and then the nightclub promotion, promoting and whatnot, there was the party. There had to be some parties going on. And wild and crazy. I mean, this is like in the 70s and whatnot, and you're still young. Um, did you have some learning experiences along the way, too?
1: Oh, my God. Well you know, what happened was when I started promoting clubs, um, everything happened so fast because I, my, I, my success grew so fast. So like I said, you become like a mini celebrity. And also at the time, my girlfriend was Peter Goober's daughter. So Peter Goober, who won Academy award a year before I met her, he won an Academy or actually it was the year I met her. He won an Academy award for Rain Man, uh, for best picture. He was the producer and then he would produce Batman. So, um, I really like this girl. I don't want to do certain things like go on Learjets, you know? They said, come on on the Learjet. But I ended up going on my first trip to Aspen with the Goober family, and I felt really out of place. I felt, uh, you know, like, you know, I was the poor kid from Asino to begin with. But then I'm now I'm in, going to Bel Air, and I'm going to, like, you know, the richest of Bel Air, you know, Peter Goober and Mandalay Ranch up in Aspen. And I I see, we go to lunch and I see the whole, his family, the Cooper family and John Peters, his partner, his family, they're going to lunch. And I see a friend of mine, and I didn't know it was John Peters' son, is Chris Peters, and he's wearing a black leather jacket. And I'm wearing a black leather jacket. And I was like, well, here's a guy kind of like me. He doesn't seem like, he's got the 40 yard stare. He doesn't seem like he's the rich guy. He's the son of a rich guy, but he seems like kind of like me. So I was, and his name's Chris. And I said, Hey, Chris, we're best friends today. But back then I was like, Hey, what's going on? It's been a while since I've seen you. And he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm promoting clubs. He goes, I said, what are you doing? He goes, well, I kind of want to get into clubs. And that's all it took. I was like, we went in the restaurant. It was like, I took, I took the floor. It was like, you know, 17 people sitting at the table. And I, when you feel confident about something. So I mastermind the, the Batman party. I said, we'll be partners on it. And we'll, we'll get, you know, it was just a big event that we planned, you know, six months in advance. And uh, I mean, Matt Dyke, who owned Delicious Vinyl, which was one of the coolest labels at that time, a, a record label, he was my DJ. And we had, you know, every star in Hollywood, you know, show up there. It was just a massive undertaking. And, um, uh, you know, two weeks after that meeting, though, I was, you know, in the at Warner Brothers with the head of advertising, Rob Friedman, and dealing with, you know, my my friend's dad and my girlfriend's dad and and it was just a that was a big learning experience to have you know 21 years old to go through uh, you know that that just blew my mind and things really started to move fast after that
0: it's like you're so you spinning, wheelhouse spinning and, and you didn't have time to you know, take in you know, the
1: success. And then there was another downfall. Right. So it happened so fast and it was a cash business. I felt like I wasn't, it wasn't real. And I also felt like the insecurity, like I don't deserve, maybe I only deserve to do something that's legitimate because this cash business was like, it was so unconventional. And I, you know, people were like all, you know, looking at me like, you know, wow, you know, like this is so much money. And and it was like so fast. Um, And I said, maybe I should do something else, you know, but what I, I ended up, you know, leaving the business for a little bit, but what I really wanted to do was be, uh, you know, an actor and a filmmaker. So I left my, my, you know, I, I started promoting, uh, you know, bigger parties. And then I said, you know, I saw this rave scene. I wasn't into the rave scene, but I said, you know, a lot of these DJs and magazine writers are creating these big events and they're like mini celebrities to themselves, I said, why don't I try to do a documentary to segue into the movie business, you know, film business? So I did a documentary on the history of LA clubs. And then I packed that the Park Plaza Hotel again, which is like the holy grail of nightclub, you know, venues, 4,000 people again. And then I said, I'm going to leave the nightclub business and I'm going to uh, do a documentary on the rave scene around America. And I got a friend to finance it and I went around the country for four months. Wrote, directed, produced a documentary around the rave scene. And it, it didn't do very really well. It, didn't, it, it did well like within circles, but it didn't make money. You got to make money when you do these things. <laughs> Otherwise, you can't do a second one. So <laughs> I I was like, flat, I didn't know what to do. I went back to promoting clubs. I did underground gambling casinos uh, in LA, uh, along with other club parties. But my heart wasn't really into it. So I, I just, and after I got approached by somebody loosely connected to the Castellano family that wanted to be partners with me. I said, you know, I think I'm going to start to do, be a filmmaker and really just, I just left everything. I said, and I worked as a production assistant in film production for three years, three and a half years. And then I learned how to become a filmmaker through that because you work with the best of the best on commercials and videos and music videos. And I, from there, I wrote, directed, and produced an a winning wedding short film called "Rituals and Resolutions," which made the second pass of the you know live-action short category for Academy Awards, and it got bought by HBO, and uh, it was did really well, and almost got me a movie deal because you get approached by everybody in Hollywood, and they say we want to you know see what else you have. So one of my screenplays was about underground gambling casinos in Los Angeles. And they wanted to make that film, and it came really close with Trimark Pictures to make it, but there was like just so much red tape. And after two years of that of you know production just BS, I was like, screw it. I'm so done with this. I'm gonna make my own movie. Only problem was I was broken in debt. and I said, well, I'll just become an entrepreneur again like I did, you know, I'm a little bit older now, screw it. I'm you know I'm just gonna you know have more confidence. And this is right around when the internet was you know I you know, had a couple of years in. I said I just need to you know sell a, a product on the in on the uh, I want to be the calculator kid. You know I want to be an entrepreneur, right? So I want to find a product like my dad did. And I just chose tarps because that was an item that my dad used to be in the tool business in the '60s. The reason why I tell you that is because his partner at the time stuck with the tool business and when my dad to go went to go sell those calculators. His name was Alan Smith. He started a company called Harbor Freight, which is a multi-billion dollar publicly traded company. And I said, well, I want to do something like that guy, you know, start off with a concept, you know, a niche concept. He actually ended up selling all kinds of things. So I started this business to, for my film, to make money, to make a film. And within six months of this TARP business, I made half a million dollars and I was able to fund my first feature length movie called Love Hollywood Style with Faye Dunaway, Andy Dick and Coley and many other actors that you've seen. And it did well in f- film festivals, but it didn't make his money. It was a, it was crazy, a crazy production because trying to do a short film compared to a feature length film is a lot harder. It's just not, you know, three times as you know long. It's, not three times hard. It's exponentially more difficult. So I almost bottomed out my business, and I just had such a crazy, you know, time with this 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 movie that after it was over, I was happy I did it, but I decided I'm going to just put my heart and soul in this business, and I chose opportunity over passion. I still did stand up comedy, but I stuck with that business, and that business since has made over a hundred million dollars and continues to grow today.
0: Wow. That's good, Michael. And then, 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 can you look you back, back and notice, notice like, similar like similar patterns, patterns your father or mother, mother that passed on to you?
1: Yeah, and, of and course. How
0: long did it take for you to recognize yeah. that?
1: Well, how I always wanted to be my dad until I found out that he cheated on my mom for 25 years. And I didn't want to do that. But I really, he was like, he looked like, you know, a cross between Elvis and Robert De Niro. He wore black all the time. It's very striking, very good looking guy. And he was, you know, he lived this great lifestyle, but it was crazy lifestyle. So much so when, when my friend Paul met him, he kind of loosely based, you know, caricatures of, you know, um, in Boogie Nights, you know, the, the Burt Reynolds character, Jack Horner was loosely based on my dad's caricatures, you know, cause he was such a crazy, he had these, the crazy, you know, orgy parties in, in LA and, and Valley. And, and um, it, it just basically, so I, I, I didn't, I wanted to be like that kind of flamboyant kind of guy, but I don't want to be unfaithful. So my mom, I, I'm like her in the sense that, you know, she is uh, like, she looks like Marilyn Monroe and, but has a personality of Don Rickles. So, um, both of you could see her pictures <laughs> right there. I don't know if you could see that. You see that woman sitting on the bed in her, in her towel right there. You can't okay. see that.
0: Get, oh my gosh. That's hilarious.
1: That's my mom. And then next her, the guy wearing the black is my dad. They, they were, they look like, you know, so I, I wanted to, it was tough because, you know, you, you, um, it's good to be around that environment. But when you're back, when I was, a, I say it was a basket case because I stuttered a lot when I was a kid, cause my, everybody spoke so fast in my family. You're the youngest. And I had to get over these things. And with my mother, she spoke so fast. So I would try to be like her, but the words would trip over. So uh, eventually, you know, you become a little bit closer like your parents. So I try to take, you know, all the good and try to be my own person at the same time. So that's what I got from them. I, I definitely saw a pass of my, you know, failure and successes with my dad. I seen my dad live out of a van when I, you know, go to school, you know, my last year of school and, you know, knock on the van, and, you know, hey dad, you know, uh, I'm going to school now, you know, and he's like, all right, you know, and I've seen him bounce back, you know, many times up and down. And that's, I guess that's why I do a podcast called Long Shot Leaders, because I do, I wanted to tell a story that I'm used to or a life that I'm, I, I'm very familiar with. And I got heavily involved in personal development when I was in my early 20s, right after I uh, stopped promoting nightclubs. Um, I got heavily involved in that. And that's kind of like what helped me to push forward on these things and and kind of deal with, you know, everything and integrate, you know, stuff like stand-up comedy and filmmaking and, and acting and, and, um, and entrepreneurship, you know. So those are the things that, that kind of helped me see the ebb and flow of my father and the, the the failures and successes and then also you know help to succeed today you know and have sustained success which is the key
0: right and you it was like the hard school of math of so learning of how to be successful because your dad didn't get taught your mom didn't get taught so you had to look outside and have other people and your first you know inspiration of success was you know what rocky did <laughs> Stallone, who played the part but that was your stepping stone and right. with every experience was another stepping stone and just listening to your story I see, you know you mentioned john rickles marilyn monroe and then you know, the, the cop the, Comical comedian side on that side. And then your dad, you know, the ups and downs of his success and failures, you actually learned of what not to do, what you say. Right.
1: right. Absolutely. My dad had a heart attack off of cocaine. I never touched cocaine in my life because I was so freaked out about doing cocaine. You know, I mean, I was around a lot of pot growing up, you know, because that just blows in your face. But um You know, you, you, uh, luckily being the youngest, I saw a lot of accidents happen in front of me with, you know, some of my other brothers and sisters. So I was able to kind of witness those things and not make those same mistakes because there was a lot of, um, volatility in my family. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, a big family, a lot of anger and, um, just, uh, a lot of carnality, a lot of crazy stuff, you know?
0: (laughs) Right. But you didn't look at it look at it in a concept or a mindset of it didn't necessarily traumatize you it just you thought oh i ain't doing that kind of right. you created that mindset of i ain't doing that that's you know effed up instead of looking at it oh my god that's so horrific or traumatizing.
1: And that's right. I mean, you know, I, I, you, you think though, there was a, there was a time where I was like, wanted to be like my dad. So you, it would creep in there though. You know, you know, my dad, you know, I was like, I grew pot in my parents' hill and I told it to friends, you know, and I was like, you know, because the, you know, you gotta, you gotta cut corners. Cause if you don't cut corners, you're a sucker, which is a stupid thing that my, you know, cause my dad cut all kinds of corners, you know, I mean, I would, I had, to, I, I, but I, I knew better, but you know, when you're around that, you kind of dabble a little bit. So it's an, it's like you dip your feet in the water a little bit, you know, cause you see, you know, you're fond of it. You think it's a possibility, but, but I, I did know because I saw such an other end of the spectrum when you, my dad got arrested, he spent three months in jail. So I had to work, I worked for him for free to make sure that he had money when he got out when I was 18 years old I was visiting the old man in jail and like, I never want this to happen to me. You know, this is crazy. So you remember those things. And I actually think that growing up where I grew up in a rich neighborhood, being the black sheep family, so to speak, was a good thing because you see the possibility of what you could have, but you don't have. And you see like a, a very big extreme. So once again, you know you know, that's why maybe I gravitate towards stories of, of, of people that, you know, have gone from extreme, you know, uh, lengths, you know, not just success in like monetary success, but I, yeah, I like to talk to people that maybe like a, like on a podcast, like a couple weeks ago, we had somebody that was homeless for 12 years and since they were 10 years old and then they became not home. Yeah. Yeah. And then become not homeless. It was like, almost like a nomad land. And I was like, this is an awesome story. And 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 those are the kind of stories I kinda of glom onto because of I've seen so many of them and it it's kind of like a Rocky story, you know, and and I've thought that maybe that's why I liked Rocky, because I saw somebody that was down from the bottom, you know, that you know, went up to the top, and maybe down to the bottom again, you know, as Rocky the other Rocky movies came out. You know, I was like, I, I know this story really well. I've seen it happen so many times, you know. My uh and and you know, death, you know, I've seen my my dad's brother. Uh, shot and killed himself you know when I was 16 years old right after I met my dad's brother and and uh, I've seen so many people you know go through so many highs and lows that um boy I really hit you with a heavy one there didn't I <laughs> but I you know to have yeah. like you know, sorry uh, that's the ADHD in me I'll just I'll just ramble and go off on you know but those those are the things that really kind of you know you know uh you know attract me is to see the juxtaposition between the highs and lows of somebody's life and the course ending in a more positive direction
0: yeah that it's part of you know the journey in life based on what you experience how you take it what you do with it to determine where you want to go and what you want to do and be and have in your future self right and would you would it be safe to say that a lot of people stay stuck in their past and the trauma and and in like toxic relationships because they don't look at it in a different perspective of okay this doesn't I don't want this and that's probably what's the barrier that's keeping them from becoming the better version of themselves.
1: Right. Yeah no that's a great that's a great question. That's a great observation, because what will help someone change is—is is, well, first they have the, you know—you got to get over the fear. But the, what's more importantly, you're always going to have fear. But if you could force your body and make a decision towards an action irreverently, even though no matter what you make that action, uh, if you can make that a second time, it's easier than the first time. It's easier the third time than it is the second time and you can, you know, and so on. So it's just forcing yourself. You have to really that first time realize, but people get so stuck with so much fear and they never take that first step there. That's why firewalks are so, so valuable in personal development seminars because it's a metaphor to just moving forward without hesitation. There's another exercise that I learned uh, through my first comedy teacher Um Uh, who's an NLP protect practitioner, uh, linguistic programming, simplistically take a 30 30 feet away from you, a yellow pad of paper, close your eyes and walk towards, visualize where the paper is and walk towards that piece of paper without hesitation. If you do not hesitate nine times out of 10, you're going to, and you put your hand down where you think the paper is going to be nine times out of 10, you're going to hit that piece of paper. If you do not hesitate if you hesitate in the slightest nine times out of 10, you're not going to touch that piece of paper. And that, that has to do with making the first step, not hesitating and, and forcing yourself irreverently. You know, you have to just push forward and make that action. And I think that's what people don't do many times more often than not. And that's why they stay in ruts or stay in quagmire, so to speak, like you said.
0: right. Uh And, Have you ever, you know, when you went fear, fear and all, and all your your thoughts thoughts that were here, and you did it anyway? And when you look back, like, oh, that's not that's what I not thought, right. thought it was going to be like. It's that was bad <laughs> after
1: all kind of moment, right? Right. Well, we are all operate from fear, so there's a try to get fear to work towards your advantage, right? Because we're all operating off of pleasure and pain principles, right? So. We want to try to be able to say, flip it, you know? So if you're afraid of something, then, well, if you didn't take action, because there's different levels of feelings, right? There's things that don't feel good for you that are bad for you. There's things that do feel good for you that are good for you. There's things that are good for you, but don't feel good. And that's the third one. Most things like eating broccoli in the beginning might not feel good, but it's good for you. So we want to learn how to, if I don't do this thing that is good for me, but doesn't feel good, what pain can I associate towards not taking action? Because all that person, before they are afraid to enter in the the pain that they, when they don't take action, they, they sit there and they'll say, Oh, well I'm just focusing on all the pain about taking the action. Well, you got to focus on all the may because pain works actually better than the carrot. <laughs> the stick is more influential than the carrot studies have shown us that you got to do both, you know, and all the pleasure you will get from taking the action but also the pain. And then you really, that's, that's the, a lot of people don't have that. I, I didn't know that. I had to learn that the hard way, you know? So, but if you had somebody explain to you and kind of push yourself, then after a while, if you learn this methodology, it's very, not too difficult. It becomes um, self healthy, self hypnosis. You do that with yeah, anything. Yeah. Like
0: you create a new habit. People form habits, habits form your future. And then, you know, even though, you know, to me, fear is false evidence appearing real, and like when the when you think about the fear and you question, like, okay, how much is the pain going to be, or how much is this going to cost me if I don't do this action, even if it's a little baby step of an action to change the dynamics, to ch- you know, help that transformation of getting out from the circumstances that you're currently in because all circumstances are temporary. Right. Most, of, most of the time they are, right. you know, and we do it to ourselves majority of the time.
1: Right. You know, it, it's the, uh, the try. I think that also there, there's a little tricks that you can do to yourself that I learned out there years, you know, the triad of emotions. We talked about that, I think before, but um, when you know, you got to set yourself up for taking action, right? So a lot of people say, I don't know how to do this. Well, first of all, if you're, you know, physiology is the first action, you know, in the triad of emotions, change your physiology, set it up for success. If you're going to take massive action and you know, it's, you're going to be fearful for taking this action. If your body is positioned in a place of power, as opposed to, you know, face drawn, shoulders slouched, you know, that's, you know, that's the recipe for physiology for, you know, not for failure. So you want to try to set yourself up for an empowering position physically. Then you want to focus on what you're getting, what you want to get rather than focusing on what you don't want. So, well, I don't, I don't want that. I understand that you don't want that, but what do you want? Well, then focus on that. Can you see that? What does that look like? What's happening there? So you got your physiology, you got your focus. Now, what are your words, your internal words like, or what are you saying to other people about taking that action? Is it in the negative? Well, I don't want to do that, you know, or I don't that, or what do you want? Say, well, I don't want, you know, to get hurt. Well, no, no, you you want to be safe. There's two totally different, you know, ways of looking at something. So mind your words, mind your physiology, Mm -hmm. mind your focus, and that will enable somebody to take that first action. That's the triad of emotions, which is the very first step to at least get you ready. Get your mind ready towards taking action.
0: And wouldn't you agree that not only that, but when you can vision like what you're doing, who you're being, the feeling of just the thought of it, there, there's a connection to that because you're creating the energy and it's already done. You already created it. Yeah. just they focus in and being in that state of being, of being that person that you want to be.
1: Absolutely. All these things are interactive with each other, too, and, and the synergy of them together, the same thing. You need, you need all three, really, for it to work. But, you know, once you start to focus, that'll affect your physiology. Once you get you, you know, your physiology, it'll affect what you're focusing on and also the words that you're saying. All those things, you know, you, know, you get one, it'll help the second one. You get two, it'll help the third, you know, so... Though all those things are interactive with each other
0: and just becomes habitual,
1: absolutely, you know, just like anything, you know, patterns are we're all human beings are pattern driven people, you know, and we'd be surprised on you know the old saying, like, you know, if you go up to somebody. And you know you link them up to a, an emotion. So if somebody has a you know so goes to a funeral and their father dies, and you pat them on the shoulder and say, "Sorry, Jill, I'm so sorry about your dad. He was a great man." And another person comes on to Jill and pats her on the shoulder and says, "Sorry, Jill." And everybody's patting her on the shoulder, right? And then about four months later, Jill's in a bad mood for some reason, but she doesn't know why. Well, that's probably because somebody walked up to her. This is neurolinguistic programming almost, where it taps her on the shoulder, and all of a sudden she had she had a link, a sub, a small. Subconscious link towards that feeling. It's not a major one, but a slight one. It's like, I don't know why I'm depressed right now. Well, these patterns were pattern-driven people. So you got to realize and be cognitive and be careful, you know, and how you're talking to yourself and what your how your position is. Are you creating a pattern when some when you meet somebody the same person that you have a problem with or something? How can you change these patterns that all enables you towards a more successful direction? Because it's it like a grooves in the record. It's hard to unscratch those grooves after they've been recorded. Got some work to do after they've been recorded.
0: Well, not only that, but you know, I, you know, of Doctor Joe Dispenza, Doctor Bruce Lipton, they talk about the programming yeah. of deep down in our subconscious mind, and it goes from the, even in the time of the womb. Then you come into this earth, and then you're getting more programming. Right. Until you wait, like have a aha self awareness or self realization, like hold up a second. You know, I call it the aha moment. It's like, wait, hold up.
1: <laughs> right. And yeah, I, used to, I, I used to, I used to do the ABCs in my uh, wife's stomach when the kids. I figured, you know, maybe the subconscious will register, you know, the sounds of the alphabet.
0: Yeah, and how did that work?
1: I don't know. I mean, I don't, I I don't know what, I don't have an A-B test to like see if I didn't do that. (laughs) So hopefully it worked.
0: (laughs) You know what? uh, There's been science and studies and research that classical music, babies listening inside the womb, classical music, because now me being a spiritual uh, intuitive class, a retired massage therapist, I learned about, reiki energy and then the chakras and every one of our chakras resonates with a note so there's a connection with music and classical music vibrates and resonates with each one of our our chakras and uh was it mozart or somebody the genius the brilliance and and whatnot related to that is it's amazing and very impressive. So, just the you know, nothing yeah.
1: there. I've not. I haven't heard that, but that sounds fascinating.
0: It is once you like really get into it, and then the binaural beats, and you know, going into the alpha, beta, theta, gamma waves. It it's we are so powerful and so it, it it's mind-boggling, but because of all the programmings, we're only, like, maybe scratch the surface.
1: You know, every time someone talks like that, I get a craving for incense, wine, and candles. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's just me. I could, I, I you know, the music now, like, uh, the room is dim, you know, so the incense is flowing. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds ben, nice. Baby, <laughs> I, I have that side to me. I was like, that sounds nice. I like that.
0: I think everybody should take up a moment, even if it's ten minutes to do it. It changes the biochemistry, it changes the energy. Right. Ten minutes first thing in the morning, ten minutes at night, and then you, after you get in the practice of doing that, you'll take the initiative. I mean, automatically, you'll stay in a little bit longer,
1: right? And
0: then a little bit longer, and it's amazing what it does for, you know, your. It's like self care to me.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I, I'm a little hyper, so I need to like you know practice that. <laughs> but uh, I need a sponsor, maybe.
0: Well, hey, I'll be more than happy to help you get you the right music, <laughs> get you the right incense, the candles, even the essential aromatherapy oils to
1: help. Oh yeah. You. You know, I do do that. I t- I take lavender oil and I sprinkle it in a like a little uh, wasabi dish. You know, wasabi dish is clean, but it's it's next to the bed because I heard that lavender is good. You know, to smell like it gets you to you know, and that's that's spiritual for me. You know, at the because uh, I'm so hyper. But um, that that's uh my uh, I so badly want to be like a like a, a cool Mr. Miyagi. You know, as I get older, you know with the you know with the with the with the you know with the lessons and the. You know the whole now. Where did I turn into Woody Allen all of a sudden? <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I
0: don't know, but this
1: is awesome. <laughs> yeah.
0: You
1: know, chamomile yeah. tea too. Chamomile, yeah, I, I love. Uh, I love my green tea. I love to you know do all that. And you know the, the the Okinawan. I I gotta I gotta make it out there to Okinawan. Those guys will barrel laughs and they know how to live. They they drink all that stuff and and uh do all the right uh you know meditation and you know all that stuff.
0: Have you ever tried uh <laughs> hypnotherapy?
1: i have i have uh, i've gotten into hypnotherapy and and also self hypnosis which i i think uh, you know uh, it, there's different levels of that too right so um i've never gone to a hypnotherapist formally but i i've gone to like you know tony robbins tony Robbins seminars because i've done every seminar he's done i've met a lot of hypnotherapists and we've had like you know you're there for like 6 days you know you, you do a hypno you know hypnotherapy uh, session and how did that work for you? That's great. I mean, you know, it's like, I mean, to me, it makes sense. Hypnotherapy is just basically, you know, kind of like what we talked about. You're, you know, you're, you're taking, you're putting yourself in state. You're creating a pattern, a positive pattern. You know, you're, you're, you're creating a uh, neuro associations towards, you know, um, towards negative thoughts and positive thoughts and leading yourself in the directions that you want to go into. It's all makes sense to me. I'm very practical like that, you know? So to me, that part of hypnotherapy really clicked to me and I was like, okay, yeah, this makes sense.
0: Right. And I look at it as like when you're, especially when you're no personal development and you tried all these other, you know, techniques, modalities and whatnot, and you just get a little bit forward, but then you come to a block kind Mm -hmm. of thing. You're like, okay, I did this, did this. What in the world is still that, that block that I can't press through? Then I go, now she's a spiritual advisor but she's a multi-dimensional certified hypnotherapist so Mm -hmm. i told her i'm like and i tell her like this is what i'm dealing with i i got missed but i i feel like there's something blocking and i can't quite attain or grasp or understand what it is that block is can we do a hypnotherapist session and go to my subconscious because i want to nip this in the butt yeah So I find it fascinating. Yes, hypnotherapy will do wonders, especially if you're struggling with something and you can't quite. The truth is inside. It's in here. You just got to learn how to practice to get in. And sometimes you need a little push or a little help.
1: Yeah. And there are some people that are really good at administering, you know, good, healthy hypnotherapy, not talking about hocus pocus, just talking about opening up your mind and, and 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 having you go, you know, think of a pattern and enforcing that pattern. That's how people get smoking. They're like, say, what? you know, I saw a hypnotist, you know, I said, you know, you just went to hip, hip, somebody that was good with hypnotherapy and associated in that meeting about smoking, they associate massive pain towards you smoking and massive pleasure towards you not smoking concentrated, probably 70% on the pain. Right. And they probably just talked to you. And then that was like 75 to 80% of your whole session. And the last 20% was maybe like, okay, now close your eyes and all that. They're trying to get you to associate, you know, most hypnotherapists, you know, as far as like, you know, and then the, that, that works because they're, they're good at that. They're good at you getting you to look, recognize those things and creating those patterns of thought in your head that lead you to the direction that you say you want to go in.
0: Absolutely. And your podcast.
1: <laughs> on <awesome>. that note. <laughs> yeah.
0: But I, I mean, because you you have good insight, and I and I'm so happy that you went on this journey of podcasting. And you have guests on your show as well, and I look forward to being a guest on your show.
1: Yeah, because you have a great long shot story. We won't get into it. This is, you know, but it, but that the, you you told me a good one last time we talked.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and everybody has to wait to go on your show to find out.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to get into that. And then then you'll be doing most of the talking, and I'll be picking your brain, and that'll be nice. That'll be fun.
0: Oh yes, absolutely. But when when do you air your your podcasts?
1: Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I, I record them on, on Fridays. Sometimes like Thursday night and a Saturday morning, but I record them mostly on Fridays. But I, it's every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Today we had a uh, uh, a uh, bonus episode, but usually just Monday, Wednesday, Friday.
0: And how long have have you? When did you start this podcast?
1: Uh, about four months ago, we started in uh, March of this year. So,
0: wow. yeah, amazing. I I look forward to being on your show, and I do believe I put the description in uh, down below where everybody can click on the link to get access to. You're on many platforms like Apple, Spotify, and all them
1: every platform that you could find a podcast on we're at and uh, we're you know if you go to any social you know place or you can go to our website just look up long shot leaders you'll find our website you know if you if you have a long shot story um, and you're listening to this fine show today uh, it doesn't have to be monetary any kind of long shot story where you overcome large obstacles to find success of spiritual or financial or you know physical just, we want to hear about that story and want to tell it. Awesome.
0: And uh, is there another movie project that or a book? Maybe
1: there, there is. I'm working on a documentary about that crazy film. I did. We just found the footage to that film. When I was working out of my house, I, I had the film production out of the house so I had the business out of the house. This was a house I was renting for $800 a month. It was a shack in Sherman Oaks. It was, you know, one bedroom, one bath. And it was just, people coming and going it was crazy and we and it it basically goes from there to the film shoot and we're doing a it's basically a documentary about choosing um passion and opportunity because we examine other in film you know people in the film industry that have you know you know sacrificed almost everything in their whole life you know for a project and um it's called burning the boats and uh we talked to other people but mainly the backdrop is this, this film love hollywood style where we Burn the boats to nearly burn all the boats to you know make this film, and uh I'm going through the editing process right now, and hopefully we'll be done with it by the end of this year, and uh, it'll be in film festivals, and then hopefully you'll go to Netflix after that.
0: Oh wow! Because now the movie industry has changed. There's so many people streaming now, you know, right. and it's it's just you know how the world evolves and changes, and you know, just like you know, I remember. You know the eight track and then the cassettes and it went from the cds and now you got
1: it. <laughs> yeah somebody wanted love hollywood style and i said well i got a dvd and they're like nobody watches dvds anymore you just want to be able to stream it
0: right so upload it into a mp4 and boom there you go you got a link and it's done
1: it's right. that
0: it's like wow it's so much easier now
1: it is it's it's fascinating i love it i love technology
0: so do i and i continue to learn to better my skills constantly how about you
1: yeah you know the learning process you know i i I like to look at myself like uh, i want to be that young miyagi you know i want to be uh that 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 one that learns and you know and hopefully by my my last breath i will have that moment of enlightenment and be like yeah and that's it (laughs)
0: Already been enlightened, Michael. (laughs) You are a master of your own destiny in the capital to your soul.
1: That feels good. I'm ready to go conquer the world now. After that, (laughs) go (laughs) right. I shall do this.
0: Well, Michael, it was a pleasure having you on the show. I look forward to staying in touch and hearing more about your endeavors and your amazing comp comp accomplishments and uh, I wish you the best of success. I really do.
1: Likewise, thank you so much. And uh, I'll be uh, looking forward to talking to you about your story real soon.
0: Awesome. All
1: right, bye-bye.
0: Well, there you go. That was insightful, very informative, and also valuable you know, message that Michael shared with us today. And you know what? Look forward to more amazing guests and amazing interviews right here on Wake Up With KC. Do you agree that, you know, it's time that we all wake up and take responsibility, even for our ancestors that do not know any better? and have been waiting patiently to have this kind of conversation. <laughs>